It's good to see each of you folks, and let me add my welcome to that of David's, and thank you again for your faithfulness to uh, join us on this, the Lord's Day, uh, either here in this room or via live stream, or, uh, and not to forget of those uh, who are in our overflow room as well. We're glad each of you are here on this beautiful Palm Sunday. That puts us a week away from Easter Sunday, and it looks as if we're going to get that nice weather in order to meet outside. I think the forecast now has it uh, bright and sunny a day or two in either direction of Sunday. Now, that's a week away, and uh, those things change. Closer to the coast or the mountains you get, sometimes the, the more apt to change they are and change quickly, um, but the Lord knows what it'll look like on Sunday. And if he's so pleased to allow us to carry through on those plans to meet together in the backyard, as it were, uh, we're going to do so. And I hope it's a lot more of us than uh, here in this room or live stream or the overflow, but maybe perhaps all together. That's the plan. Now, today's Palm Sunday, and uh, most churches, uh, I'm making an assumption here, usually... Uh, focus on passages of Scripture having to do with the triumphal entry. But since we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, we've we've actually been in the last week of the narrative for months now. So today we wind up just before Easter Sunday morning with a little paragraph that has to do with Christ's burial. So if I can draw your attention, or invite you to turn with me rather to John 19, and this will be verses 38 through 42. Uh, Again, just a short little paragraph, which will conclude chapter 19. We pick up with chapter 20, one week from today. But let me read in verse 38. And you might have the chapter heading, Jesus is Buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Verse 42, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they lay Jesus there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday, Palm Sunday, and another opportunity to open your word, to read your word, to ask for your help to study that word, and to have you by your Holy Spirit open to us its truth so that we may obey it and live our lives 
less like ourselves and more like you. We thank you for this day. And and what a privilege it is to even gather in your name together as a gathered church. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here's what we'll do. This is a shorter paragraph. um, But John is is, uh, known for his simplicity in the Greek language. But he... Is very good in covering all the bases. So if, if you want to make an outline, even though, again, this is narrative and we could uh, draw that out and make it more, uh, I don't know, worthy of a, an A in preaching class, I found that the best way to go about this, just looking at its composition, is just to organize it around those simple words put in the form of questions, all beginning with the word W. Who, what, where, when, and why. And if you look back through there, who is the first two verses were introduced to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus for the third mention. What is given to us in verse 40 where they describe how they go about burying him according to a Jewish custom. Where happens to be in a garden and the tombs in the garden and both are near the place of execution. 42 gives us both when and why, and they both have to do with each other. When was before sunset, and why, because sunset was coming. But each of those are seen, and they're seen clearly. Let's start in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea. So we've got another time stamp here, after these things, after the contents of the previous paragraph. And this is where, described for us by John, this is when and where the arrangements for Jesus' burial were organized. And I I thought when I read through that and with some commentary that used the word arrangements, I thought, now doesn't that word just put it into perspective? Because isn't that the, the very word that we use when we've been made aware that we've said goodbye to one of our family or friends or church member that you wait for the arrangements right and the arrangements usually have to do with a date and a time a funeral service perhaps an interment Uh, for those that attend the funeral it's it's much less uh, of of a thing then it would be for the family that's organizing all these things. It could even include the dissolution of an estate. Um, all types of things. It, it, I've learned some things from uh, funeral homes, having worked with them for some 20 years now, and when certain things come to pass, that it can be very difficult for a family, especially when... This was not foreseen. In some cases, there's a terminal disease or age uh, has made this something that you can see on the horizon. Or, in the case of a tragedy, it's all there at once. And in this case, it's hard having spent months talking about the last week and weeks talking about the last hours that just the night before Jesus was breaking bread with his disciples, he'd washed their feet before this happened. 
to say that this was foreseen. It was taken care of in, in the darkness of night. Many people woke up that morning to find out that it had all been done. So as far as these two men um, and, and, and the estate of one Jesus of Nazareth, there's very little to do. It just had to be done quickly because the Sabbath was coming. So when we read after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, John is just describing who this man is uh, and what he did. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Now, remember last week, they had tried to speed up the process by asking if the legs could be broken. Jesus' legs were already broken, or not broken at all, because he was already dead, rather. And uh happened a lot quicker than they had expected. But now, Pilate's asked this last question, and given permission, so Jesus' body is taken away by this man. Um, just to give you some idea of how this might happen, uh, working with some tradition and extra-biblical information to fill in the blanks as far as a burial and how they would do things, that's another thing I've learned, being in ministry. People go about funerals differently. There's big ones, there's little ones, there's uh, simple ones, there's complicated ones. Uh, different cultures do this differently. And we've got modern technology to, to give us time, where in this case there was not doesn't matter that the Sabbath is coming. You want to get this done before sundown. Burial in the Middle East usually took place within 24 hours. Now, under Roman law and under Roman occupation, as it were, the bodies of executed criminals were normally handed over to their next of kin. But there's an exception in this case, not in the case of those crucified for sedition. We talked about this before, that those bodies were to be left after death on the cross for all the reasons to capitalize on the horror of the whole thing. They wanted people to see for days. So, as far as the Jewish custom, that was under Roman law, the Jews never refused to bury any executed criminal, even for sedition. And when I read over this, I thought, that is interesting and even lines up with things that I learned on my last trip to Israel. There were only two, and this has been years ago. But on one of those bus rides, there's lots of bus rides, and I like to sit up at the front instead of the back because I get bus sick just like I do car sick if I don't pay attention. <laughs> and the tour guide was pointing things out, and he pointed out a bus. It was actually a, a bus that looked like it was uh, co-opted as an ambulance of sorts, almost like SWAT team looking uh, panel van type thing with room for several people to ride along. And uh, I had written this down. I had to look it up to remind myself of the name. But it's called the Zaka, and that's an acronym for some Hebrew words. And it's a group of people made up of Orthodox Jews. 
And uh, the culture over there now between the Orthodox Jews and the rest of the population has some tension within it because back in the 40s when they became a nation, they decided that they would allow the Orthodox uh, no taxes and to live on the state for the purpose of caring for the Scriptures as they'd done all the way back uh, millennia. Only problem is, since the 40s, they've had a lot of children. It's a big group of people. And uh, not only do they not pay taxes and live off the state, but they don't have to serve in time of war. Every young man and woman are enlisted, whether they like it or not, in the Israeli Defense Force, except for the Orthodox. So some of the Orthodox... Uh, knowing that they have no part in these things and because of the laws having to do with dead bodies and being unclean, some of them have gone to the extent to volunteer themselves for the purpose of cleaning up after acts of terrorism uh, when rockets fly over and there are casualties or even in the uh, case of suicide bombers. This group of people, Orthodox Jews, knowing the ramifications of these things, but for the purpose of a proper burial, clean up what's left. Even in the case of suicide bombers, they'll get what they can for the purpose of actually returning it to the family. Now, you won't hear that on the news, but that's what they do. It's that important to them. So in this case, they would bury executed criminals, Jewish and even un-Jewish, regardless of the charge, because of what they thought was important as far as burial. Um, They did have some exceptions. Uh, They would not bury these bodies in the same place or the family tombs of others because it might desecrate those already buried in the same tomb, so they had a burial site just outside the city. Now, if there was no family, and if you were not Jewish, and the Romans took care of this, you'd likely wind up on the trash heap known as Gehenna, where the trash burned about 24 hours. But this is not at all what happened to Jesus. His death is very different than those crucified. As far as history tells those stories. Pilate granted the request. And that may reflect his uh, conviction that Jesus was innocent. That he wasn't worthy of the death that they blackmailed him in order to hand down. Uh, It could also, also possibly be one last snub against the Jewish authorities. Uh, to, to give this man to someone who wanted the body to have a proper burial rather than a criminal's burial. And then in verse 33, we're also introduced to this man, Joseph. He's mentioned in all four Gospels. All, all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you've got to look at each of them to fill in the blanks to get the full picture of who this man is. So I thought I'd mention them. Matthew says that he was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And John tells us that was a secret disciple. 
Then in Mark's gospel, tells us he was a respected member of the council, which would be the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. That's interesting because that's the same thing that was said basically of Simeon and Anna at Jesus' birth. There were people looking for this man that the others were so sure that Jesus was not. Then Luke tells us that he was a member of the council. Okay, we learned that from John. But adds that he was good and righteous. And then he tells us who had not consented to their decision and action. So from Luke, we can conclude that that vote in the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night was not unanimous. At least, Joseph of Arimathea was a dissenting vote and likely Nicodemus along with him. So Joseph's influential position here as being rich, uh, a good and righteous man, uh, a respected member of the council, he had enough to actually risk in approaching Pilate to ask for his body. You might think, well, good grief, where's, where's Jesus' family? Where's his brothers? Where are the disciples? They likely didn't have what would be necessary to get the ear of the governor. But this man did. So he's the one that we are told asks. Um, the other gospel writers do not mention the introduction of this next man. But in John's gospel, this is the third mention of Nicodemus. Uh, the second mention was in chapter 7. Where, again, these men are asking about what to do about Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So even as early as chapter 7, we see him speaking up as to whether or not he's being treated fairly. But in verse 39 here, Chapter 19, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So John may have added the detail of Nicodemus here. Um, first visiting in the night, you know, John has been very careful to... Um, it seems as if he's ringing every bit of drama he can from those two words, light and darkness, isn't he? So maybe that here is to say that this man who's been hiding in secret for such a time as this is now boldly stepping into the light. I don't know that anybody has a case to call Nicodemus a coward if he approaches Pilate in such a... A bombshell of a, of a weekend in Israel's history to ask for the body of a condemned uh, criminal. So there's no longer a possibility of misunderstanding the intentions of Nicodemus uh, or his assessment of Jesus. And it makes sense that him and Joseph of Arimathea seem to be working together in this. A simple guess may be that they split up. Okay, I'll go to Pilate. And you go get the spices, and then we'll reconvene, and we'll get this done um, with the clock ticking. Uh, the mixture of spices here, the commentaries are pulling from all different sorts of sources. 
uh, to try to understand what is meant by these things seems to be uh, not necessarily an official consensus, but what I seem to see over and over again um, was this myrrh was a fragrant plant resin, almost like a sap. It would dry hard and could be crushed into powder, almost like uh, my sister played the violin and she had the rosin that she'd put all over the bow. And I always thought that was a, it smelled like, you know, pine tar, something similar. And that was mixed with aloes. And you think of an aloe plant, you know, Grandmother would cut a piece of that off and stick it on a burn and quick as she could, right? Um, it's mixed in just about everything that uh, our, uh, I worked at Hills, it was called uh, Health and Beauty Aid. When I was stocking things, it seemed like there was just, we went through a spell where if you put aloe on the label, you could sell it, right? It's better, it's got aloe in it. But in this case, aloe likely refers to another powder of aromatic sandalwood. Sandalwood's a good smell. But the two of these together, they say, was quite the concoction uh, to dry out a body and mask uh, the smell of decomposition. Because according to Jewish custom, um, they didn't embalm. That would require mutilating the body. Rather, they would wrap them. The spices would be on the exterior of the body. Um, either way, this is a very large quantity of these spices. Uh, you might, in your translation, read a hundred. Well, that was a Roman weight. Given the difference in uh, our pounds, about 75 pounds, but still, that's a lot. Um, verse 40 here's the what. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So being at a transition point here, we've, we've, we've learned about two men, very bold men, uh, men of, of great uh, interest, reputation, and means. But here they've done what they intended, ask permission to do. I think, though, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be missing something to, to just move past the fact that, wouldn't you say it's very interesting that even though the disciples ran away at the end, you've got these two secret disciples who seem to step out in boldness in exactly the opposite fashion. You say, well, what should we make of that? I'm not sure what we should make of that. Other than if you've been a Christian any amount of time at all, you find that people come to Jesus differently. Uh, with Nicodemus, I mean, good grief. Can, can you lay it out on the table any better than a private meeting with the Son of God who gives a very blunt invitation, you must be born again. And then to see the miracles over uh, the years. But it wasn't until his death that it seems it's, it's changed? Or was he staying in the shadows all along purposefully for something like this? I'm not sure because no one expected this. And no one expected a resurrection either. So I've, I do find it interesting 
Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, so that's a geographical notation, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, and then some specifics in which no one had yet been laid. So the place of burial was a private garden, not a public cemetery. That helps us wrap our head around some other details that come later downstream. Only John mentions this garden, and it's also very near the place of execution. That was mentioned only here. Matthew tells us it was Joseph's own tomb. But the privacy of this garden would allow for the women to visit the tomb. Because women wouldn't visit a public cemetery, especially in the dark. But this is private. So it gives them uh, what would otherwise not have been a possibility. And then the when and the why here in verse 42. Because of the Jewish day of preparation, it's Friday, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Not why they uh, wrapped him according to custom, but why they put him in that specific tomb. Well, it was Joseph's. Well, it was near. Well, it would be shorter to do it that way. So Sabbath was almost upon them, which was sundown on Friday. All work must stop. The nearness of the tomb was a great help. And John seems to emphasize that the tomb was not only new, but that no one had ever been laid in it before. Which kind of uh, pairs well with a, a donkey one week prior that no one had ridden on before. Right? Um, both of them seem to be set apart. So even in his humiliation, there seems to be a certain amount of kingliness to what's taking place. And then you could look at it from the perspective of the authorities that it would be less offensive to bury this man guilty of sedition alone, not with any other bodies as was the custom um, to maximize space. We... we <laughs> We would never think about putting more than one body uh, in a vault, would we? Um, that's against the law. Um, but in this case, and, and really there was, even in a tomb, uh, they'll tell you on a tour uh, that there's a place where they'll have a body for a year while it falls away from the bones. The bones will be washed a year later and then put in the back where all the rest of the families bones are but really John's likely giving us this emphasis here to front run what happens in chapter 20 the next chapter what we study next week if that tomb were to be empty on the morning of the third day which again no one is expecting but John is writing this decades later he's already in the way he's writing priming the pump, as it were, in our heads, and anyone else who starts thinking, well, how can this be? It eliminates any confusion as to which person may have come out of that tomb. It's just one. So there can only be one resurrection. Why would that be confusing? Well, because there were other graves opened over that weekend, right? Right? 
And there were other people walking around over the weekend, which really messed up any of the things that the Pharisees thought they tidied up by getting this crucifixion over. You've got open graves and people walking around during the weekend, as it were. It's a problem. But not this way. One tomb, one man, one stone, one seal. It's perfect. And keeping things straight. Um, And then one more. The mention of a garden. Helps us understand why a woman would confuse Jesus with a gardener. You'd expect a gardener in a private garden or orchard. So that said. Kind of to switch gears and work toward a conclusion here. the, The paragraph explains that Jesus was given... A proper burial, a loving burial, but a burial all the same, because to these people he was dead, and he was confirmed dead with a spear in his side, and no need to break his legs. So let's kind of focus for the next few minutes in one direction in order to try to conclude the theological implications of this. And give us somewhat of an application to go home with. If you were to look at the large scope view of Jesus' work as God taken on flesh, as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, sent from heaven to dwell among us, uh, the prophets and even the epistles describe this in terms of a humiliation and then an exaltation. Uh, The humiliation is seen very well in Isaiah. Uh, Paul does a remarkable job of explaining the uh, exaltation where every knee will bow, um, having painted the pictures of the humiliation. They're, they're, They're both there. But... What's often overlooked in that uh, transition from humiliation that culminates in the crucifixion uh, and the transition over into glorification where he is risen, he ascends, and then is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. The pivot between humiliation and glorification does not actually begin with the resurrection. It actually begins with his burial. That's where we see a horrible picture, humiliation, a negative, shift over into a positive. And I'll have to show you this. And some of you might say, ah, he might be stretching here. I don't know, because I think there are other places in Scripture that seem to all gather together uh, to make this clear. But in Isaiah 53... If you want to turn there or make a note. Um, in verse 7, this is familiar. Um, sometimes this comes along with communion. Sometimes in passages this time of year. Uh, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Verse 9. Here's the turn. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It's a very subtle change there. But everything's negative up until that word rich man. Because everybody heretofore would have had not a rich man's burial. And then describes, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So it's a it's one outlier in, in this whole thing. All of it's negative except for that. Jesus was not at all buried like an ordinary ex- executed criminal. We see that in the New Testament. So we'll need to come back to this, but just keep that tucked away. Theologically, there are some issues that always take uh, the interest, the discussion, the rabbit trails, uh, and, and most of the hours and most of the print. Um, as, as far as this space of time between what we read today... And what we'll read next week. Between the time where Jesus says it is finished and dies. And before it is learned that the tomb is empty on the morning of the third day. Where was Jesus? And what was he doing? And we know where his body was. It was in the tomb. Very carefully taken care of. So... These are questions inquiring minds want to know, right? And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of variation in what the commentaries say. Um, there are many that believe that Jesus went to hell. And that was one of the questions when I first learned of when I was about to size my boys. I went, now, wait just a minute. That, that, a cross is not a place for Jesus. Hell is certainly not a place for Jesus. How does this work? And uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, actually looks at this a, a, a little differently. That They believe on a verse of Scripture that Jesus actually went to hell for the purpose of loosing the Old Testament saints who had been in limbo since. Uh, that would be their view, but the view of those closer to our denominations, uh, if the idea is that he spent time in hell, it would be to fully pay for the sins of humankind by experiencing the actual punishment of hell itself. Now, for a number of reasons, I, I don't think that works. Um, for, again, a number of reasons. And some of these I will save for Wednesday night. This is, this is like one of those to be continued things. Because at a certain point in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what this means. That's the short answer. The long answer will be on a Wednesday where we can say, well, here's all what we've got. And none of them really stand out and say, this is, this is great. So we have to say, we don't know. But let me give you at least the verse that this idea is built on as they're trying to match up Scripture with Scripture. It's in 1 Peter 3, 
And this is verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Sounds like Hebrews. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. That can only mean his resurrection. Verse 19. In which. In which what? Probably in the spirit. But since he's talking about death. Our brain is thinking about death. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's, there's the line in question. And then verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And that's where we just kind of grind to a halt. What is he talking about with Noah? Well, we knew that the days of Noah were wicked beyond measure. because Basically, God hit the reset button except for eight people in an ark. So there has the, the, the race known as human that God created in his own image has a long track record of living in bondage, right? Whether or not he's talking about a modern culture and the same problem that the former culture was in, we're still in bondage and through the spirit he preaches, it's hard to say. What I really don't know what is verse 20. Um, We've been talking about the Apostles' Creed, and that's actually where we land on Wednesday, where it says uh, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, buried, descended into hell. Now, a very notable theologian said, there's nothing wrong with that, just the order. The hell that Jesus went through was on the cross when he exclaimed, why have you forsaken me? So if you just switch those, uh, descended into hell, died, was buried. And according to his estimation, you'd be correct. I'll leave it there before I get into trouble with someone. Um, not, I don't know who it might be. But again, these things are not main and plain. We don't fuss over too much of that. We can have a big fuss over main and plain. Because that's our gospel and we can't change it. But um, let's see where we are here. It's more theologically correct in my estimation. uh, That Jesus' experience of hell was experienced on the cross. A correct understanding of the nature of Jesus as both God and man, which we know to be true in Scripture, will answer the question better for us, just falling out of the natural implications of a human body and God at the same time, though that's very difficult to think through in all points. Um, But learning last week that Jesus' human body very much died the spear running through and the water and the blood confirmed his death. And that was right after he said, it is finished, right? And then on the other side, if that's his humanity, what about his deity? Can God ever die? No. Put this in the same category though it's a serious question with the question that uh, 
certain people like to put toward Christians in order to see if they can make them flinch. Could God make a rock so big he couldn't pick it up? And what you should say is you look them square in the eye and is first just say, really? And then say, certainly not. And by the way, there's a lot of things God can't do. To make a rock so big you can't pick it up would involve a contradiction. And God's not going to willingly put himself in the place of contradiction. He doesn't have to. He's God. God can't lie. It'd be against his nature, right? God can't sweep dirt under the rug as far as sin goes. And God very most certainly cannot die, right? He can't do that. So you've got a dead humanity, but a live deity. So you've still got the question, well, where is Jesus' deity while his body is waiting? Well, I think it lines up with other places in Scripture. If his human body died, but the God of the God-man cannot die then why wouldn't it be as simple as having yielded up his ghost, as it says that we just read, he's now absent with his body, which would mean he's present with the Lord, right? And then when he is resurrected, he'll be reunited with his body in the same fashion that those who are asleep will be reunited with their bodies Just a fraction of a second before we are with the Lord. That to me seems to make sense. And I think it has its witness in scripture as well. So where was Jesus? If if you want at least two more pieces of evidence. First, Jesus told the repentant thief on the other cross, what? When will you be with me and where? Paradise. Today. Now, there are some that say, now, wait a minute. The Greek can mean that he's saying, I say today that you will be with me in paradise. But I don't think that the man who just asked for water so that he could shout, it is finished, is going to use extra words just for the sake of making it sound King James-ish. <laughs> today, with me in paradise. It shouldn't be any more complicated than that. And then the other, um, where did Jesus, and this is one of the gospel writers, at his death, before it is finished, Father, I commend my spirit into your hands. So it's in his care. So those are two more. As for 1 Peter 3, again, we'll talk about that on Wednesday. Um, Man, we'll, we'll give it a good shake. As to try to understand what that means, if this means something different. So what do we make of all this? How do we conclude? Well, I think it's quite simply God having seen His Son's completion of the work He gave Him to do. And a very clear mark as to its completion with an it is finished. I don't think it would be fair on a cosmic level for God to allow His Son to suffer humiliation one moment past His full obedience. Right? It's done. I mean, what else is there to do? 
So afterwards, Jesus' body was cared for with all the dignity and honor as far as a burial in a tomb that had never been used before. And it seems that the tune of the story has changed. Right along with Isaiah. That the humiliation is over and now begins, even slowly and subtly, but on the morning of the third day, undeniably with all the grandeur uh, of his resurrection. His exaltation begins here, having been tenderly laid to rest in a garden. And I'm sure glad that John gave us that word. Because when God decided to create a place for his prized creation in his own image, where did he put them? A garden. And we think about arrangements, right? And putting together some flowers that will look pretty. He's in a garden with trees and vines and flowers and birds that he designed himself. Right? That's a beautiful way to spend enough time to make sure we all knew that he didn't swoon, that he didn't revive, that he was dead, buried, and resurrected. It's quite a picture here. And it enables us to see the humanity of these men and these ladies who came. And even though they did not expect the resurrection as it was described to them, and we really shouldn't judge them for that, we wouldn't have either. All that they poured into this burial in the short order with what they had with all its dignity, even with its tears, was unnecessary. Let that word soak in and don't misjudge it. Because we do the same thing, right? We spend a lot of time trying to put together a service worthy of the person and their memory that we lay to rest until the trumpet Right? But when I say unnecessary, it's only because that interim is to give a a pause. Maybe that's what the word Selah is all about. Maybe a musical interlude. Because there's one thing that's absolutely sure, theologically speaking, if we know anything about our Bibles. If the sinless Son of God happens to be dead... He surely can't stay that way because death has no claim on him. Death is a punishment for sin and he was sinless. So even at all this beauty, it's just temporary and ultimately unnecessary. Just like Peter would describe. The grave can't hold him. The pangs of death will be loosed. And the same is true for the child of God. We've, we've gone through this countless times out in this area of the property. If you belong to Jesus, death hath no claim on you either. Amen. It's been broken, paid for, washed away. But there's something, it seems, purposeful in this rest and us saying goodbye 
and watching this cycle continue. That's why I think uh, probably one of the most uh, grievous crimes a pastor could ever be guilty of is wasting a funeral. You say, why? It took one for Nicodemus. He'd seen it all but that. And when someone says goodbye to someone they love, they'll think about things they've never thought before. And perhaps that very thing is what Jesus will use to show us that death was never meant to be part of this at all. And he's going to show that by conquering it once for all. So I think this little paragraph here is beautiful. And it's the perfect prelude from a guy who calls himself the one Jesus beloved. Almost like the little rumblings before the up from the grave he arose part. Maybe that's the Selah, I'm not sure. But with that said, let's us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for John 19. And for a description of your burial. For two men. Some ladies that aren't mentioned. A garden. Lord seal these things to our mind. And also our hearts. And Lord prepare us for a week from now. Where we will read yet again. For so many of us. The account of your resurrection. Where you not only laid down your life, but you had the authority to take it back up. Lord, may you plow our hearts and make it soft for next week. Lord, may we invite others to come and hear. May our ears be open to hear ourselves. But thank you for our portion today. Thank you for our time in your word and in your house and in each other's company. Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.